Welcome to the Brothers Talk with your hosts, Rod, Scott, and Norm, where our purpose is a simple one. We are three Black African-American men who are giving voice to that most feared, most misunderstood, and most rarely heard from segment of the population. So give us a listen and see what makes us unique from other voices out there, because we've got no strings attached and no filters to keep us from saying exactly what we think and what we believe a lot of you are interested in hearing, even if you may not always agree. So wherever you are, buckle up for a weekly experience that's sure to be unlike any other, but hopefully not for long. Our ground rules, we're not starting this process with our own introductions because we feel that the message is the thing and we want to get right into it. As we go along, you'll learn about as much about us as you care to know. But right off the bat, we want you to know that each episode is designed to be about 30 minutes of discussion because as my grandfather always said, it don't take all day to do nothing. And because frankly, we don't believe in over-talking a subject. We'd rather you want more, not less from us and our guests. And just before we launch out, here's how you can reach us with your comments, questions, and suggestions. We're at The Brothers Talk on Twitter, The Brothers Talk on Instagram, the Facebook group with the same name. And if you care to share in more detail, hit us up at the email address, thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. Now let's get to it. And here we go with episode number three. We're excited that last week we recorded episodes for Millennium TV's M24 News. You'll be hearing a lot more about that in the future, but uh, we are here again just to tell you how much we've enjoyed all of the feedback we've gotten, both positive and supportive. And so we just look forward to continuing the conversation. Yes, and thank you guys for all the support. We hope you turn into our TV show. You know, we want to reach as many people as possible, but we, you know, so far we just want to thank everyone. I want to kind of echo what Rod and Norm just said, but I also want you all to remember to buy black. To ask someone, did you buy black today? Did you support a black business today? And go out and support black businesses so we can change the trajectory of where the black community is headed. Great point. Great point. We want to talk a little bit about the notion of black-on-black crime as perpetuated by black people. I've got a couple of friends who work inside law enforcement as lawyers and also on the other side, on the enforcement side of it, and how quick they are to blame our people that the real problem our communities are the crack dealers and and the, the crack users as though they are the only proponents of this process. They never take the time to figure out where the drugs come from or who pays for the drugs or how they actually get into our communities. And I just find it odd that, you know, they will literally have an argument with you about the fact that they believe the real problem is that, you know, the people who are shooting up the drugs or snorting the drugs. And so what do you guys think about that aspect of of the conversation? Well, it's always easy to prey on the weak and the people with no voice in the society. But the fact remains that drug use and drug dealing is percentage-wise equal across the border of all demographics. But it's easy to support white supremacy, and it's also profitable 
for our people to actually just look at one segment, which would be our community for this problem. Yeah, Norm, you and Rod are exactly right. What we have here is a form of internalized racism. So you have a group of people who are benefiting by blaming the victim. They want to ignore the fact that racism and the remnants of slavery and slavery have put these people in a position where all they're trying to do is survive. They're not mentioning the fact that we don't own boats. We don't own the transportation system that allow these drugs and drunk guns to come into our communities. What they want to do is they want to blame the victim so that they could appease folks who are paying them. And Norm, you said something earlier about the guns that I think was uh, particularly prescient in how these guns get into our communities when none of the preferred weapons of the drug crime groups, which are AK-47, Glocks, and Uzis, are manufactured in this country. Yes, Rod. It, it's a systematic genocide. In this country, you have our government pretty much th- that's creating this havoc in our society. Iran-Contra and Gary Webb actually pointed that out with the uh, discovery that the CIA was literally pumping drugs, the cocaine, right into our communities directly. And they knew because they, the crack cocaine epidemic was already running rampant in Central America. So they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what would happen. What they didn't actually realize was it was going to spill over into the white community. And we see over and over again, blacks who are willing to ignore the fact that you those drugs that come out of Southeast Asia and out of South America means that you have to have a infrastructure that allows it to come aboard planes and ships and through boats and uh, across the borders and make it through customs or make it around customs or through processes that there just doesn't, the low-level drug dealers in our communities just don't have that kind of reach or influence or the kind of money necessary to do it. Yeah, and so what we have to do, I think, we got to focus on a a course correction. We got to focus on how do Black people take control of this narrative? How do we prevent drugs and guns from coming into our community? And I think what we start, the way we start doing that is by holding politicians accountable. If you can't hold the people who, are, who own the ships, who own the transportation system, who own the boats, who bring in the guns and the drugs in our community, then we're going to vote you out of office. So you're telling me that we have satellites that can read the date of a penny from thousands of miles in the air but yet we can't identify and they supposedly don't know who own the boats, who own the ships, who are manufacturing the drugs and the guns that come into our community. But you know, the first step in holding them accountable is being able to communicate this to the people, which is what we're trying to do. And hopefully our TV show will actually even make us more successful at that. But if the people don't really realize what's going on, we cannot really incorporate them and putting pressure on our politicians. No, you're absolutely right. And the the part of it that is really kind of unsettling is the fact that too many people in our community have to see this as a zero-sum situation, that it's got to be an either-or. You know, we're not advocating for the drug dealers. We're not advocating for the drug users, saying that, you know, they don't have their part of the problem. But we're saying that, in essence, it's totally unfair to just pinpoint and single out those individuals and ignore the fact that, as you said earlier, Norm, that this is a process that is orchestrated at a much higher level to try and decimate our communities 
by and large. And so when it comes to the resources necessary, it's almost like you have to ask yourself, well, who would have that kind of capital available to fund this kind of process? Who would have those kind of connections? And it's certainly not the local drug hustler. He's just at the end of the supply chain process. And it's just as interesting as I want to have a conversation with some of these individuals who want to blame us to ask them, what do they think of the opioid crisis? Because that's a much bigger situation drug-wise in this country, but you don't see them really turning around and blaming those individuals. They allow them to call that an epidemic, a health epidemic, as opposed to calling it a drug problem. Not only that, though, they're calling it an epidemic, and they're devoting resources towards addressing the epidemic. In our community, drugs and guns have been a crisis at crisis level for decades, but there haven't been resources. We know why. We know that the, the problem in our community are economics. So the resources aren't directed at our community to, to address the core issues that are causing the drugs and the guns to come into our community. But when it comes to opioids, there's a national campaign to, and to put more resources towards addressing that crisis. Right. So... We've got this ongoing debate that allows us to focus on not only just pointing out what the issue is, but then looking at what are the potential solutions. And so, as you said, Scott, one of the things we should be trying to do to change the direction of the conversation is posing what kind of solutions could be put in place. And so, of course, we want to start by saying, like, it's a bigger problem than just thinking that you can continue to uh, arrest the crack dealers, but you have to look above that process and say, well, who stands to really gain? from the drug use in our communities. And would those individuals be as quick to use drugs or sell drugs if they had opportunities to get good paying jobs, if they had opportunities to get quality education, if they had opportunities to be a more part of the American dream? And all things being equal, we also have to ask ourselves, if drug use and drug dealings equal against, across all demographics, why aren't other demographics in prison and being charged the rate that we are. That's really profound when you think about it, Rod, just thinking about what you said, who stands to benefit. Let's look at this equation. So you have the people who are supplying the money, who are producing the drugs, and the folks who are transporting the drugs through whether mechanism necessary, whether it's boat, plane, train, or whatever. And it's going to the dealer, low-level dealer, and the user. The only thing changing that equation are the things that change are the dealers and the users are going to prison and they are replaced by other dealers and users and they go to play, they go to prison and the other part of the equation never changes. The folks at the top who are making the money, who are, who are producing the drugs and the guns stay the same and in our communities, we keep sending the same people to prison. And, you know, what continues to just be kind of aggravating in that conversation that we have, as I said, we talk with lawyers and, and law enforcement people and other members of the community as well. But I think it's particularly heinous in my viewpoint when I'm talking to people who are actually involved in the system. You know, those folks who are outside looking, well, they're the kind of gadflies who just have their own opinions and everybody has opinions. But when you're inside there and you recognize that, the predominant number of people being arrested and locked up for drug crimes look like you, when you realize that 
the whites who are arrested get pretrial intervention so they never actually have to go in front of a judge and so they don't see the inside of a jail cell just like you said norm when you realize that for a group of people who makes up somewhere between 13 and 14 percent of the population which is black african-americans and yet we're somewhere near half of the prison population, particularly for drug-related offenses. And when the FBI statistics say that we don't use or commit drug crimes at any greater rate than any other group, that these individuals would still seek to find a way to lay the blame at the feet of the people in our own communities. It's like, they, as you said, they've been brainwashed and they don't realize they're doing the work of the white supremacist faction that would continue to want to lock us up and lock us away and benefit from it in the fact that jails are privatized. Well, it's also, Rod, uh, again, internalized racism. And Norm made another good point when he talked about uh, other groups using drugs at the same rate as our community. What I want to do is I want to talk about for a second the impact of internalized racism as it relates to that, because What's happening is if you take a city like Atlanta, a large metropolitan city like Atlanta, people have internalized racism so much to the point that they've been kind of self-imposed this perimeter of area where they live and where they operate and where they work. They don't step outside of that perimeter because for some reason they've been conditioned because of internalized racism. So they're not stepping into other jurisdictions and court systems and see whether people are being given the same kind of punishment and treatment that they're getting when you go to our court system in, in our communities. Are they giving the same kind of sentences? Are they being treated the same way for the same kind of offenses? And But internal, internalized racism has conditioned us to a point where we're compacted, and that's in most metropolitan areas. Blacks have been kind of self selecting to compact in these areas where predominantly black and so you have like a ready source of drug dealer and drug users drug gun buyers and gun users in that segment of the population well let's go back to how the real drug academic with the focus on the war on drugs began all the way back with the Nixon administration when in essence, you know, they began to take more and more of the manufacturing jobs out of the inner cities. And so as those jobs left, they ramped up the other half of the process, which was public assistance. And so it's, it's not a coincidence that as Norm, you referred to the Gary Webb article where he investigated the CIA earlier, that at the same time, that they effectively went in and, uh, and basically decimated the Black Panthers, uh, the leadership anyway, that suddenly the drug influx came in as the leadership, the older heads in the Black Panthers were off to jail and the remnants of the Black Panther Party became Crips and Bloods with access to guns and drugs. You know, this is an ongoing process that we have to not only acknowledge that it happened, but then 
find the solutions that say that, you know, we're going to really go back and demand that we get access to jobs and better education and, and, and information technology, because who in their right mind believes that if given a choice between having a career as a drug dealer where you constantly got to look over your shoulder and you're certainly not going to live to a ripe old age of anything, that you, you would choose that over the idea of having a job that would allow you to provide for your family and, and sleep safely at night without worrying about drive-by shootings and things like that. But that's the narrative that not only the white supremacist power structure, but the media that they control continues to want to perpetuate that story as though we are more like animals. And so what, what I also wanted to note about what you just said there, Scott, was that it's that accepting of the oppressor mentality because the other piece of that is that the law enforcement that exists is like at the borders of the community. So in essence, you remember one of the things that happened that sparked the uh, riots out in California and the shutdown was when those drug dealers started to spill over into some of the white suburban communities. And exactly. suddenly then you had this overcorrection on their side of like, you know, just literally going in like an armed paramilitary force to just arrest literally like every black person they saw. Well, Rod, you know, you said one really, really, really thing that this stood out, the media and how the white media always controls the narrative. And as long as they control that narrative, you know, we're fighting against a giant. But the fact that we have a voice in this podcast and on television, if we can just change that narrative or give more people a view of the actual truth, that is the beginning of change. Exactly. And that's part of the reason I, I mentioned this whole thing about internalized racism, the impact that it's had to the point that we know where the boundaries are. We've been conditioned, Rod, like you said, in the riots out there when you start spilling over into the white communities because the boundaries have been drawn. And in this podcast, I, w I just want people to think about it. Ask yourself, why don't you venture out farther than the boundaries in your mind that you've been, for some reason, you've been told, well, you know, they don't want you here. They don't want us over here. You know, you can't go over here because they're going to treat you this way. You can't do this and you can't do that. And you can't, because we're now, we're self-imposing those boundaries. And that's one of the things that I think is holding our community back. Other than we haven't figured out how do we unify our resources to address some of the issues in our communities when it comes to guns and violence and drugs. This has been going on for a long time. So how do we change the change course and change our trajectory of where the black community has been heading for the last 30, 40 years, or even 50 years when it comes to drugs, violence, and guns in our community? Well, you know, we have to control the narrative. We cannot let our enemies control, you know, what people think and believe. And even our people, really, our people believe what white supremacy is putting in front of them. And we yeah. really have to control that. Yeah, and you're really right. I mean, you know, I applaud Tyler Perry for opening that giant studio down there and, and making more opportunities for Black filmmakers and for uh, his production facilities. But I'm just hopeful 
that what he will also see is that there's a need to make better black content than just comedies. Because in essence, for the longest time, the Hollywood narrative was that you know you couldn't sell black movies with black leading characters internationally until you had Black Panther come out and really just destroy that myth entirely. And so, but the other side of that is that we need to have more conscientious filmmakers who are willing to take some risks to show some other sides of the Black experience than just the, the lighthearted entertainment, which again, there's nothing wrong with that until you have too much of an imbalance. You know, if you look on the uh, white filmmakers side and other nationalities as well, you can find a lot of daring filmmakers who make content that is thought provoking, that leads you to see their cultures in a different light from just something that's fit to be laughed at or sexualized or, or gratuitous violence. And if we can have that, then, you know, there's nothing wrong with having those others, but we are too far imbalanced to the other side. And that means that the notion is that other countries around the world have this viewpoint of us as being nothing more than comedic relief at best and over-sexualized, violent people at worst. Right. Uh, good point. Excellent point. So you have the producers and the artists being told that, you know, we can only produce certain kind of shows to be successful. There are, people are only going to watch certain kind of shows that we produce. The same thing with rap and, uh, and gangster rap. You know, when rap music came out, it wasn't the gangster rap, but you had the folks, the power it be, controlling that narrative that the only kind of music that's going to sell is going to be gangster rap, and that became the, the predominant kind of rap in, in rap music. And that with that went glorifying drugs and killing black folks and black on black crime and guns and that whole thing. But all of this, when you talk about that narrative, you're talking about we think that we can only produce stuff that's going to be comedic. That's the only acceptable kind of movie that people are going to watch. Now, since you touched on rap music or hip hop, you know what really happened there is you had a lot of educated rappers and people talking about the conditions in our community initially. But once black exactly. people sold their labels to, again, our enemies, they basically controlled what was going to come out. Right. And that's when you had nothing but gangster rap. Nothing but that. You know, nothing about enlightenment, nothing about telling our story, but just things to literally destroy us. And I think we can use this this platform, the uh, as well as our TV program, to give people the opportunity to talk about things that folks are doing in their communities uh, that are positive, that are trying to they're trying to do to help change course that we're doing in, in our communities. So I would like for people to write in, tell us about something positive organizations and that we can give a shout out on our on this on our podcast what they're doing in your communities to make a difference all right well that's it again for now uh, as our commitment is to keep these broadcasts on our podcast to around a half an hour we've reached the end of another segment we want to thank each and every one of you again for spending some time with us and we hope you'll be back with us again next week on friday when we drop a new episode and remember you can reach us with your comments questions suggestions it's at the brothers talk on twitter the Brothers Talk on Instagram and the Facebook group of the same name. And if you care to share in more detail, 
you can hit us up at the email address, thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. As we said, stay tuned for more information about our upcoming news program on Millennium TV. And until the next time, uh, we'll delve a little bit more into the lack of critical thinking in our communities. Until then, be blessed. The time is now and it all of us ready to have, so let's do better every day.